I've spent a lot of time, Joe, slating everybody in the company. Backstage, I'm starting fights off everybody. I've ridiculed everyone on the roster. And I just want to say from the bottom of my heart, I'd like to take this chance to apologize to absolutely nobody. The double champ does what the f he wants. Welcome to the News Boxing Podcast. With me, Andy White, and with me today, we are a man down. Mr. Martin Theobald is not with us today. It feels like, like, like that Bill Withers song, man, just the two of us. And the voice there you heard was of Mr. Terry Chapandama. Yeah, I haven't done one of these in a while. I haven't done one of these for a couple of weeks now. What, just the, just the two of us? or No, just podcast, man. I checked SoundCloud. The last one I did, man, was two weeks ago. <sighs> Nice, like it. It's been a while. <clears throat> Revving to go now. I've got a lot to get off my chest. <laughs> uh, okay, so we have we have talk of the Warren show coming up. Look, look, uh, look at Andy trying to just you know you go warm the audience up to that. Let's relax. Well, you can get the t-shirt by the way. I'm gonna get this. Yeah, I'm gonna flip this thing on the front to the back and then just have hashtag talk like you tweet. I don't wanna. <laughs> There's definitely an appetite for that in the streets. You know, just talk like you tweet, just big letters, and just see who's really living it. <laughs> you've got me enough trouble this week. Thank you very much. Do you know what? I imagine Martin's stress levels at this moment are like at a thousand. Because it's like, you know when the teacher leaves the classroom and you've just got the really naughty kid and the really sensible kid... And the teachers are saying, I'm really hoping it all ends sensibly today. Yeah, well, unfortunately, the sensible kid hasn't been quite sensible enough recently, with the naughty kid at least. So, on that, what's your weekend been like, Terry? Uh, Hopefully that's something you can tell me about without sliding into some <laughs> horrible tirade. No, no, no. Look, really good weekend. Um, Friday, obviously at the Warren show. So that was most of Friday. And that was, that was a hell of an event actually. So we'll touch on that later. Saturday, we had the Fitzroy Lodge Club show. So that was pretty much all of my Saturday. Um, a lot of lads making their debuts actually. So, uh, and I know people get turned off by the amateur stuff, but look, there's nothing more exciting than watching a kid make their debut. We had a kid boxing yesterday, young Frankie, I'm just going to call him Theopathetus, mate. He's a big, long Greek surname that I can't pronounce yet. So you imagine this, right? The kid's a teenager, about to make his amateur debut, loses his gum shield, and it all just goes crazy because it's like, well, where the hell's the gum shield? Can't find it, can't find it. Poor kid's now shaking like a leaf, right? Boxes, first, probably, first couple of minutes of the fight, just still looked like he was recovering from having to find his gum shield. But then this is, and this is what I mean about 
why amateur boxing is so exciting. The young kid, honestly, takes a standing eight count, then just bangs his gloves together, goes, fuck this. We're going for it. Absolutely goes for it. Shows tremendous heart and character to to claw back a fight from a losing position. So I was really proud of him, proud of young Yusuf, proud of Lennox, proud of Tosin, Mo, young Ibi Idris, who's made his debut as well, looked fantastic. I think when he grows and matures and has that real power, he'll be someone to to take notice of. But they're all very talented guys. Like, you know, for, from a Fritz or Lodge perspective, um, Tosin shut the show down. I'll send you the video of the last round, man. Like, just seeing the heavy leather these guys throw. And it would have cost you a tenner to watch all of those fights. And there wasn't one shit round of action in all of those. So, honestly, guys, I keep saying this. If you're disillusioned with where boxing's headed, just pop down to an amateur show. Spend the tenner. Because there are two things that are true. You're likely to see someone you're going to see on a bigger stage anyway. And secondly, most importantly, if you're one of these media outlets and you don't want to queue up to meet boxers and you don't want to queue up to get exclusive content, build the relationships when they're amateurs. Yeah, just build a relationship when you don't know who's going to become who. And then one day one of these guys will cross over and you'll be the first person they come to. So if you're serious about boxing, you have to be serious about the amateur scene. But that was really good. And then obviously today we're here. Hopefully we get the pod out nice and early so people can have it with their Sunday roast. That's why it's a bit more family friendly this week. <laughs> Just a quick one on last week's pod. Poorly edited from my perspective last week. I left a few things in actually that um, I wasn't too happy with. So yeah, if you thought that last week's pod contained any bits that you didn't particularly like, then I apologise because um, it was just purely, I didn't get my shit together with the uh, editing yet. So I thought I'd just mention that before we carry on. I, you know, I admire Andy for his bravery, but I don't think we can, you know, shove anything on him. I, I take it squarely on my shoulders and I will roll back to a story that people probably aren't aware of, but I got inboxed by someone who listens to this show a few weeks ago and they asked a very simple question. They said, how do you cope with the online bullying you must face? And my response immediately was, I live it in the real world. I lived it for years in the real world until I mastered the art of a left hook and the ability to, to, to look after myself, it was a lot of shit that I had to swallow. And this was from people who could really do it. Like, this isn't these, these faceless people on Twitter who claim to be, you know, tough guys online and, you know, they're not visible in public. You don't see them at shows. You don't see them anywhere. You know, they, they tell you that they want to do stuff to you and they don't, you know, they don't arrange any kind of meeting. So for me, the faceless, spineless people that are on Twitter are the source of so many people's issues. And in a time when Twitter's becoming the place where the conversations happen, we all have a greater responsibility for how we treat people online and how we treat each other. From women posting pictures that have been massively photoshopped and giving other women negative body images to overly promiscuous language, overly violent language being used online. These are all things that have an effect in the real world. And you think just because you're invisible that you're not accountable, you are. So I'm not going to take a step back from what I said yesterday. I stand up for all of those. 
last week. Yeah, no. Well, they don't know when we're recording this shit. <laughs> um, look, I stand up for everybody who has been targeted. Young, you know, Tabitha Young, Terry Ann Young, all these people who have been targeted by the faceless people, the guys who have six or seven different accounts. We know this because they come from the same IP address. All of these guys, men and women who are trolling and bullying and don't have the heart to do it in person. I will never bow to them. I'll never back down. You can Google my name as much as you want. You can dig up whatever pictures you want. I don't care. I'm not on Twitter. It doesn't affect me. If you don't like me, if you think I'm a dick, if you think I'm anything, if you, whatever you think about me, cool. I just ask that you come and do it in person. You can contact me. We can sit down. We can have a meet and we can do whatever, right? But let's just find out if you've got that Twitter heart in person because I'm not a one-man army against bullying and I'm not going to claim to be. What I am going to claim is I'm not going to take any crap from any of these guys. You know, who are these guys? All I can say in all honesty is if you don't like someone, avoid them online. Don't, don't, don't engage them because I don't engage with any of these morons. But for all the people who do contact me and say, how do you cope with the bullying? Listen, this is how you cope with it. Yeah, you stand tall, you puff your chest out and you do great things in life and you have great stories. I think we can continue on with the show now. Uh, yeah, apparently we can. So that's 50% of our listeners <laughs> turned off. Um, Terry's Terry and Terry's our Terry. So we are, we are. On to some lighter news. I want to add that we've always had, and up to this point, we've always had Dave McGinley. He's been our VIP, like, uh, and, and, he, and he continues to be in amongst... Well, I like to call it like ringside. To the, the he's part he's part of the ringside seats. But I, I miss I miss Dave McGinley, and I think people go, "Oh, you don't love Dave McGinley." There's a good reason why. Like he's actively engaged with this podcast since I've been on for sure, and you know he's been pretty consistent with it. Um, There's but, several reasons. Yeah, and and he's genuinely a good guy. And don't forget when we, when we were out with him. Just a just yep. a generally good guy. And when you're around someone like Dave McGinley, it's an infectious energy that he's got because he's always quite upbeat and positive. He's the most. I mean, maybe this tells me something about alcohol in general. But he's the he's the most positive person I've ever met that doesn't drink. Yeah, and maybe like he's, he's what I mean by that is, and that might be a, sound a bit cryptic, but what I mean by that is constantly boisterous. To the to the extent you think, oh, this guy must be on something. He's nope. high on life. Yeah, but maybe maybe that's just the general effect that alcohol does to you after twenty years of consumption. It drags you down so that somebody who doesn't drink looks like they're boisterous. And you're just looking. And you're <laughs> slowly like, poisoned myself to the point yeah. where a normal human looks like they're high on drugs. And you're just looking at him, and you're like, yeah, when you see him, and he's just mad happy and that, like just like all eyes like. I mean, like literally like on fire and shit. You're like, wow, what am I doing wrong in life that I don't feel like that? Well, I mean, David, we're wondering what on earth we're talking about him for. There is no reason, if I'm honest, Dave. Uh, yeah. You were just a someone I sort of brought up as one of our, what I'm going to call ringside. But Dan Glozier is also part of our ringside now. And I'm not going to tell you why, but he is. Uh, yeah, I know why. But but I think just to, just to touch on it, like... This last weekend, I've been around our listeners, like in person. Like I've been at around the show. at the show, at, at the amateur show, because a lot of the lads listen there. The response to what we did last week through the roof, 
the response to the podcast in general through the roof. What people love about us, Andy, is our honesty. No, we don't sugarcoat. We call it like we see it. And I think that's the one thing we have to hang on to. And that's that will always be our differentiator against the better financed podcasts because they can't take these kinds of risks. And it's what makes us unique. It's what makes us different. It's probably what's going to make us a target. But that's just the burden we'll have to carry. Um, so, yeah, Dan Glozier, you're a lifetime member to Ringside. Um, and that will grow, no doubt, in time as people... I don't know. I maybe not. But I, I'd like to make <laughs> they're, uh, they're inducted uh, against like, well, even against their will. <laughs> I'd like to make a case for Rob Martin and and what's his name, Danny Watley as well. We just need Watley to show up in person, and then yeah. he's fully anointed. Rob Martin has to be up there now. They're, and then they're knocking on the door to be yeah. sure. Um, right, let's talk. Let's talk boxing, seeing as it's, we're thirteen minutes in and we haven't even spoken about it yet. Right, let's talk about Frank. Let's talk about Frank. Um, I love it when Frank has a good weekend. I think Frank had a stonking weekend this weekend. Um, so obviously I was, at the, I was at the Royal Albert Hall for the boxing. Is it the best venue for boxing in Britain? It has to be. Wow. Do you know what? There's nothing better than attending a venue built by rich people for rich people. Because there's essentially no bad seat in the house. <laughs> right? There's no bad seat in the house. So... You know, shouts out to my friend Ross who got us the tickets. But we were right at the top, literally like up with the gods. And you still had a good view. My eyesight's not amazing, but I was still able to follow what was going on in the ring. How how um how long has the has boxing been away from the Royal Albert Hall? I heard it was Billy Joe who was the last guy to box it. So you're looking at eight years or so. Wow. But what what people will also remember of an, those of an older generation who remember you used to have the ABA finals in the Royal Albert Hall. So guys like Nigel Ben, Johnny Melfa, uh, Mark Edwards, Rod Douglas, etc., probably all fought in the Royal Albert Hall at some point in their amateur career, and it would have been packed. Was there a specific reason why it wasn't put there, or was it just to fall out of favour? Um, I imagine. Ago, I imagine there were cost issues. There are. Uh, risks of violence issues and so forth. So there was a really, there was a visible police presence on Friday as there was a visible security presence and they were very dynamic. So they were definitely sweeping through the room because if you know the Royal Albert Hall, it's just a circle really. So everyone's just doing the circles, doing the sweep, making sure that people were behaving themselves. But it also just seemed to be, I think they just sort of, they'd picked the right fights to draw the right kind of crowd in. So everyone seemed to be relatively harmonious. I saw one scuffle out the corner of my eye, but it wasn't anything of the scale that we've seen at previous Warren shows. So I think people realised, you know, we'd like to come back to the Royal Albert Hall, so let's not mess it up. Oh, positive. Um, No, honestly, so I will recommend to people, if there's another show on at the Albert Hall, go. The whole experience of going to the Albert Hall for me beats the O2, beats the Copper Box, beats your call. So you were there? Yep. Did well, Anthony Yard fight? He did, but before that, can I just say <laughs> big shout out to Rob Martin? Um, Rob was there on Friday. Um, Rob's always in good form. He brought his little lad out, actually. And now, but but by this point in the evening, I'm completely f- completely off my head. So I think Rob was back, he came downstairs and backstage afterwards. 
to mingle with with the boxers and David Hay and so forth. So nice to see Rob taking his lad out. You know, that's what boxing is about. It's a family sport as well. Um, big Ian Wellman as well. Big shout out to him. I see him everywhere. I think he does more shows than anyone. And he also has like the biggest forearm in the world. His forearm's like my leg. Like the man, honestly, if he, if he knuckled down and did strongman training, I don't think he's beatable. Like he's just, he's just, you know, some people just have like a super skeleton where it's like 30% bigger than like our skeletons. He's just, a, he's a huge man. Sounds like some horror movie character, a super skeleton. But he's a really nice guy. And look, anyone who's got Microsoft skills, if you know how to migrate from data center to Microsoft Azure, I mean, he might be able to hook you up. <laughs> right. Tell me about Anthony Yard then. Because, uh, I mean, actually, there's, there's, who's Bentley? So, Denzel Bentley. Denzel Bentley. Let's talk about him first. Okay. So, Denzel Bentley is. is young middleweight. He boxes an amateur for the Fisher Clubs. That's when I first became aware of him because my friend Ross used to train with him. So, we bought the tickets off Denzel Bentley. So, he's a middleweight. He's had, I think it's like nine or ten fights. All but one have ended by stoppage. And it's not that he just stops people. He's he's really messing people up. Like the guy has incredible power. You know, on the on, on this show, we talk a lot about Linus Adolfi and how Linus is that guy that is on the trajectory for a British title. I think Denzel's moving a little bit faster than he is at the moment because Denzel Bentley boxed last, so he boxes after the main event. Like Overcard? Is that what it's called? Um so he wasn't Denzel wasn't even a float. I think because they put the floats on early, and one of the floats was, for example, James Branch was a float. And I think they they assumed that, you know, Denzel Bentley's crowd would stay later anyway. So they ran that right at the end when they realized they had just enough time. And also I don't think Denzel was in there to 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 do the distance anyway. But everyone's like the a large number of people stay behind to watch Denzel Bentley. And they weren't disappointed because I don't think he was on top form. But he stopped the guy. And even from when we were sitting, it's just power shot. He's, he hits incredibly hard, but he's also technically sound, which is what happens when you work with a guy like Steve Heiser at the Fisher. He's technically sound. He's a smart young man as well. So he, and you can see that there's a degree of intelligence in the way that he approaches it. But it's the power. Like I've, I've, just, I've just taken to calling him the Black Golovkin now because he's, he's got that difference-making power. And I'm looking at him now and I'm thinking, who do you put him in with? Like, how soon do you put him in with a guy like Liam Williams? He probably needs a bit more experience. But I imagine if he hit Liam Williams, he'll have Liam Williams backpedaling as well because Liam Williams isn't a big middleweight. Denzel looks like he'll become a big middleweight over time. But he he's exciting. So if you want to pick someone for the future, Denzel Bentley might be the guy. I'll caveat that by saying he hasn't been tested yet. So his metal hasn't been tested yet. So we'll see what he's like in adversity as he progresses. But 10 fights in, he's making amazing progress. Much like we said about Andre Sterling a couple of weeks ago. These guys are being well-managed. They're being well-guided. And you're seeing the results because they're building this kind of excitement. And we're going to touch on Anthony Yard in a second. And I think there are times when you have to trust Frank Warren. because, And here's the difference between Warren and Hearn, I think. Warren has a team around him who have been matchmaking for years. You know, Frank knows who to put people in with 
and what he's trying to get out of that that process. Whereas I think at Matchroom, you're just making fights to fill cards and you're you're just trying to minimize your risk when doing so. So no, I'm looking forward to seeing what Denzel does in 2019. I think he'll be knocking on the door for the British relatively soon. I would I don't want it to be too fast, maybe in about six or seven fights time fighting for a British title or at least a Commonwealth title, which is a belt that I'd probably be shooting for now just because of the the lineage of that belt. So all the fighters we respect in that middleweight slash super middleweight division have held the British Commonwealth title. So no, super excited about Denzel Bentley. I say to everyone, get behind this kid. And where does he go next? Um, look, he, he's still having his learning fights. Am I bothered if he fights for a Southern Area title? No, I think he's well... I think his talent is well beyond that now. The English title... I've always thought the English title is a bit of a curse. So if you look at the English title at middleweight, no one who's won that title has gone on to do anything special. I think probably the best winner of that will be a guy like Steve Bendel. Yeah, I think Steve Bendel won the English and then went on to challenge for the Commonwealth, but didn't win that. And I can't remember who he lost to. He might have lost to a guy like Martin Murray. But Steve, anyone who knows Steve Bendel knows he was the golden boy of British amateur boxing about 20-something years ago. And they thought he'd be the guy to bring us a gold medal at the Atlanta Olympics. Is this specifically middleweight you're talking about this? Well, for the English title, yeah, because you, you have to look at belts and depending on which weight division you're in is different lineages for the belts. So if I'm, gonna, if I'm guiding a fighter, I want him to go for the belt that's got the story behind it. Because when you then commentate, so let's say, for example, you put Denzel Bentley in for a fight to fight for the Commonwealth, right? I'm able to say Denzel Bentley is about to fight for the title that's been won by Billy Joe Saunders, Martin Murray, Nigel Ben, Chris Eubank, right? So immediately that anchors your perception of him in that company there. That's what you're comparing him to. If I tell you Denzel Bentley's fighting for the English, now you've got guys like Steve Bendel and people will be like, I don't really know who Steve Bendel is. So, so you're anchoring him at a different point. You always want to have your fighter anchored in the discussion at the highest possible level. Um, of course, Lance Dufia, the fighter you mentioned alongside um, Denzel. That would be a good fight. That, I, I don't see what the obstacle to making that fight is. Let those two fight. Be huge. Uh, Lance Dufia's next fight is the final eliminator for the English title, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and just me speaking as a fan, does he need the English title? Don't know. But like I said before, there's I can't think of anyone decent that fought and won for the who have fought for and won the English title. If if someone can correct me, and let's go back to 1990, from 1990 till now, has anyone won the English title who's gone on to win or fight for a world title at middleweight? Um, let's move on then to Johnny Garton. <sighs> so Johnny Garton fights Chris Jenkins. God, if it's if it's Colin, I'm so screwed. But I think it's Chris Jenkins for the British welterweight title. And he brought, a, like, it was pretty much all Millwall in the Albert Hall. So, wow, unique atmosphere. That's the best way to describe it. But really friendly atmosphere as well. Shouts out to met a lad there called Remy who listens to the podcast. Um, first time I'd ever met him. Really nice guy. He loves the podcast. Scary guy to talk to. Like, you know those guys that give nothing away? Like, he'd be really good at poker. Like, really emotionless way of talking. But really nice guy. So big shout out to Remy, man. He he looked like he had a good night. 
I think we've talked about the Johnny Garton story a lot here. Like he went from, you know, the guy that was having tear ups and wars on the small hall scene to winning the British title, like real, real rags to riches story in terms of boxing and, you know, probably overachieved. And so he fights Chris Jenkins this time. And Chris is a guy who gave Tyrone Nurse trouble. I think that was a fight on Sky when you start to ask questions about Tyrone Nurse. And that's when I think Matchroom called on Tyrone Nurse a lot after that Jenkins fight. So Jenkins is he's a well-schooled boxer. He he can actually box. And I know Garten went after him in the first part of the fight, but you know, Jenkins' skills told by the end. And so he wins the unanimous decision. I think one scorecard had it 119-110, which is horrible. It wasn't that wide. I think it was probably a 116-112 fight. But I really felt for Johnny Garton, Eddie Lamb, the whole iBox crew, because they've invested a lot in Johnny. And I had a brief chat with the guys in the camp about what Johnny does next. He's 31, man. He's had a lot of hard fights. Does he go again? I think he's earned the right to make that choice himself. But you wonder how many more wars Johnny Garton can have. And now that he's not British champion, is there anything he'd really want to fight for? Maybe a Commonwealth. But you could also understand if Johnny Garton decided not to box again. But look, the guy's had a fantastic career. He will always be respected in the sport because he always gave the fans their money's worth. And like even that the last round he boxed where he was still going for that win. Just, there's just some people who are built tough like that. Um, right. So last week we kind of discussed Anthony Yard. Uh, you know, what was he doing? You know, what? Right. And I thought, I thought that discussion was horribly flawed. <laughs> and here's, here's why. Anthony Yard boxed Travis, whatever his name was. Let's forget fucking his name. Travis Jeffrey, whatever his name was. Travis Perkins. Well. The Lumber Yard. Yeah. You know. <laughs> I mean, he's been he's been he's been chopping opponents down for a while. <laughs> boom, boom. So, so the lumberjack, Travis, the lumberjack Birkins. Uh, so, so at British level, it's generally accepted Callum Johnson's the number one, right? Because he won the he's he's the last holder of the British title. I don't know if he's vacated yet. I imagine he has, but Callum Johnson's the last holder of the British title. So you say, okay, you're the benchmark at 175 pounds in Britain on Saturday night he fought a guy called Shawnee Monaghan. Shawnee Monaghan's ranked lower than, than Travis, whoever it was that Yard fought. Just bear this in mind. Callum Johnson, who's considered to be better than Yard, fights an opponent lower ranked than Anthony Yard's opponent. So if nothing else, Anthony Yard is fighting at par in terms of where he is in his career. These are the kind of fights he should be having. Because no one questioned why Callum Johnson's fighting Shawnee Monaghan after fighting Artur Baturbiev, right? We realised when he fought Baturbiev, he lasted four rounds. Okay, mate, you're not at that level. So we're going to bring you down a level. All Frank said is, we know Yard's not at Kovalev's level yet, so we're going to keep giving him incremental tests. And people wanted to do this other guy dirty because he had a couple of defeats. But he's ranked highly and he's given people trouble. And Anthony Yard made light work of him. And when people say, why does Frank do this? About, I don't know how long ago this is, about 20 years ago, maybe 30 years, obviously 30 years ago. Anyone over 50 who knows this, please feel free to correct me. There was a lad called George Collins. 
I think he's from a traveler background and he dominated the junior amateur scene. I think he went 67 and zero, finished his amateur career 77 for one. His one defeat came to a guy called Gary Stretch. That was his only defeat, turns pro at 18. He turns pro and Frank has him um, for like 30 odd fights. He's winning all of these fights. He has shown some vulnerabilities, but he's winning all of these fights. He comes up against, I think it was Gary Jacobs first. He loses that. And then he just gets starched by Kirkland Lang, retires straight away, just realized he didn't have it. And I think that's kind of fed into Frank's nervousness because the same thing happened with Amir Khan, where they gave him Brady's Prescott. Prescott exposed what a lot of people knew about Khan. So I think Frank's all, he has that natural reticence to throw you in the deep end before you really need to. Because I think that George Collins thing really affected him. And, you know, you have to understand those sorts of stories in a promoter's mind. Hearn doesn't really have that because he hasn't got 30 or 40 years in the game. Frank has. So Frank will say, why am I going to rush Anthony Yard? He's not even 29 yet. He's going to have three or four years of world-class fights. Let me prepare him for those now. If the fans don't like it, fine. But when we get to that world level, we want to stay there. Because, and let's go back. How many of Hearn's fighters have stayed at world level? You know, you look at Kel Brook, he joins Matchroom and to this, no, I was going to say to this day, but God. I <laughs> to can't. this day! Ugh. To this day! I love that. I love that there's a single for that now. Brilliant. I hope, I hope Deontay gets those royalties. But, oh, this is just my train of thought. So, so when you look at Anthony Yard and you say, okay, what do you do with him? I think you give him a couple more fights at this level. I'd still like to see if they can get Thomas Williams Jr. out of retirement for one more fight. That would be a good yardstick for him. I don't, I don't see him getting involved in the British level. But spinning it back to matchroom, that's where I was. Eddie Hearn signs Kelbrook. His best win remains Sean Porter. He's done absolutely nothing since then. What do you think Kelbrook would have done with Frank Warren? If nothing else, he would have had a WBO title and he would have probably sat on that for ages. And he would have made more money and he'd be better regarded in boxing. Frank looks after his fighters because he understands the risks. Whereas if you look, the history of Matchroom is just a load of crash and burn scenarios. You know, Ted Cheeseman, they pushed him too fast. Now you're, you're faced having to rebuild a lad who's barely 24, which you shouldn't have to do. You know, and there were, there's a litany of Matchroom situations like that you know Wadi Camacho was another example where Matchroom didn't look after him properly there's an experience that comes with bringing fighters on that's why guys like Frank Warren never go out of fashion that's why guys like Bob Arum never go out of fashion because they take a a whole career view of a fighter and they understand you make your mo the most money at the end so why am I going to rush you there I want to prepare you so when you're there you give me at least six to ten world-class fights so we can all make money together the thing with, um, from a casual perspective, which is always my perspective, when I look at Yard and another fight we're coming on to, Daniel Dubois, we've been talking about these guys for at least two years. And my question to you is, when am I going to start seeing their names amongst the conversation at large, I guess? When are they going to start making an impact among the upper echelons of the sport? on the assumption that you believe, and I think given our previous conversations that you do believe, 
that they will eventually be in that conversation. So Anthony Yard is a world-class talent. I don't dispute that for a second. I, I just want to see him do the 12 rounds. So who do you match him with that will give him the 12 rounds without there having to be a world title on the line? That's the tricky question for a matchmaker. You want someone durable enough to go the 12, but maybe not someone who's going to take five years of Anthony Yard in the process. That's a very tricky approach. Maybe someone like a Dominic Boisel, but I don't know if he's ready for that. But if Anthony Yard fights for a world title tail end of 2020, I'll be okay with that. I also understand if Frank says, I want to let some of these old guys either move on or get older before I put Anthony Yard in there. Because that's the history of boxing. You know, just have the old guy pass the torch down, he takes his money, Anthony Yard becomes a new champion. Fantastic. You know, next year, could you put him in with a Sullivan Barrera? I think you could. I think Dubois is different because it's with Dubois, it's more about not necessarily when he's physically ready. I think it's more when he's tactically ready and when he's experienced enough in terms of how to make those decisions in the ring. He has fight changing power in both hands. So you could theoretically put him in with Joshua now and it might not go four rounds. You could put him in with Joyce. It might not go four rounds. But the problem is, if it did go beyond four rounds, would Dubois be able to cope psychologically? We don't know yet. But he's good enough that if you put him in against Joshua for a six-rounder, I'd he give Joshua hell. But sadly, world titles are fought over 12 rounds. So it's about building him up to a 12-round animal. And then we go from there. But Dubois... End of 2020, I'd expect to hear him talking about, I want to fight for a world title. This year, build, get more experience. And then next year, because think about who's holding the belt. Do you really want Dubois getting battered about by Deontay Wilder? Probably not. Do you want him to get outboxed by Fury? Probably not. Do you want him to go life and death with Joshua? Probably not. He's a young man. So he can afford to wait. And I think as boxing fans, you have to accept that we can wait for Dubois. He's only, what, 21? We can wait for him. When he gets to about 23, 24, then I'm like, okay, mate, now, now I need you to go and get me a belt. But right so now, I'm you're talking um, back end of 2020 is the earliest we're likely to see him, if, if at all, in 2020. Well, I don't think Dubois fights for a world title in 2020, but he, he'll be making those sorts of noises. I expect at that point, he'll be looming large in the rearview mirror of Anthony Joshua. Because... If he if he starts on the scene sort of like 2021, even 2022, given that you sort of quoted 23, 24 of his age, and if you're 21 now, you know, three yeah. years' time, we're looking at 2020, 2022, um, <clears throat> then you have to sort of look at and think, well, three years, four years on top of the guys who are in the sport now, they're coming to the end of their... All right, potentially. I realise that there's precedent for them to carry on for another 10 years, but they're not going to be at their physical peak. Perfect time to, to take a belt then, right? Yeah. Yeah, I suppose. And, and if, if, if you're going to be in charge of your own destiny in terms of your timing, it's a perfect, now is a perfect time to get that experience and wait until those guys are... Yeah. Look, another guy who did it was Marcus Brown. So Marcus Brown was the 2012 Olympian who just beat Badu Jack. He's been ready for that level of fight for probably a year and a half now. 
but they waited because they knew that crop of light heavyweight champions were aging. They were, I mean, they were getting into fights that were taking years off them. Look, you're fighting Adonis Stevenson. You know, when Badu Jack fought Adonis Stevenson, it took it out of both men and both men suffered in their subsequent fights. And that's what essentially, look, if I'm looking after a fighter, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to buy myself time so the existing champions get old and then I'm going to jump in and take the belt and then it's my time to hang on to them for as long as I can before someone else does the same thing to me. So how did you board at the weekend? So he fought Razvan Kujanu, um, the fourth best Romanian heavyweight. <laughs> Who would have thought? That's just, the fourth best the fourth Romanian heavyweight. Best Romanian heavyweight. Um, well, the best Romanian heavyweight is about to fight Pulev. So I guess that kind of gives you a, a rough benchmark. But Razvan's more famous for taking Joseph Parker the distance and also for being Joseph Parker's main sparring partner. Um, he did. He went the distance with Nathan Gorman. So this was a nice benchmark to see where Dubois is versus Gorman. Dubois did him in two rounds. The left hook he hit him with was cruel, absolutely cruel. And then, you know, you, you look at that, I'm trying to think who did him in two rounds. Ortiz did him in two rounds, right? So Luis Ortiz did him in two rounds. Dubois done him in two rounds. Does that mean that they're at the same level? No. But it does mean that Dubois has something about him. And we shouldn't rush that. If we really want another British heavyweight to give us big nights, heavyweight title fights, let's be patient with Dubois. Let's be patient with everyone. Let's be patient with Joshua Boatsy. Let's be patient with Craig Richards. Let's be patient with all of these young guys and let them learn their craft. We can't keep having them jump into these crisis fights where they're fighting for survival because they're not learning. And I'd rather they learn and have longevity at the top, then we start rushing him into fights just to please the faceless people on Twitter. Okay, so any more on Yard, Dubois, Bentley or Garten? Um, I just wanted to say about Yard. You know, when people say, what do you do next with him? I think what Frank can hopefully do now that he's got this link up with ESPN, and I'm hoping it's broader than just the Tyson Fury thing. Let's get Dubois out to America and let him have a couple of fights out there. And there'll be some guys you can you can give him over in America, names who should fall over when hit by Dubois. And the same thing with Yard, but probably Yard at a higher level. So give him someone like a Lionel Thompson over in America. You know, a good, solid guy who should give him rounds without necessarily being the biggest threat. Or depending on whatever's left inside of Joe Smith after the Bivol fight, maybe Yard could fight just like a, a two-fight deal, you know, get Joe Smith Jr. involved and get Lionel Thompson involved. I think at that point there, if he impresses against guys of that level, then there are no more questions to ask about Anthony Yard. You know, if, from a UK perspective, look, if Anthony Sims is going to be fighting at, you know, small hall shows in Peterborough, surely he can take a fight with Anthony Yard. But, you know, there are options. But I'd like to see those two guys just have a small run in America where, they start to build their awareness and I think that will help when they start to look for title fights. Actually, mate, Andy, you're right there. <laughs> do you know do you know when someone's just had a shit, right? Not only have they just had a shit, but they had to flush it twice. Yeah? 
yeah. had to flush it twice and then he had to shut the door and he never shuts his bathroom door like he shut the door like this is full on what's that film was it Why Outbreak we have to talk about it? it's an Outbreak with Dustin Hoffman and they've all got like a bowler and shit and they all come out in the suits <laughs> so I think we've all been quarantined on the side note it's that episode of American Dad do you remember when when Roger farts in the house and then yeah. they basically had to quarantine it and Roger's there like Wow, who did all of this? <laughs> this guy. <laughs> now I'm just playing right. with you. Thanks for that, Terry. Um, right, general general gump about the Warren Show. Have you got um, anything to put? Yes. So, so, mate, number one, remember, I was completely drunk. So after the fight, I'm with... I'm <laughs> Ever with, the professional. I'm with my new friend, Ben, now, right? So Ben's like, he's like, Terry, do you know what I really like to do, mate? I'd love to go down and meet David Hay. So I'm like, all right, mate, let's go and see David Hay. Now, he doesn't, no, no, he doesn't obviously know that I know David. So I'm like, mate, let's go and see David Hay. He's like, you serious? I'm like, yeah, watch. So we go down. I know some of the Warren security guys. So they're like, mate, yeah, go through. Pop down, see David. How you doing, mate? We have a quick chat because he was flying off to, to some nightclub or other. But we had a good chat. Uh, ben gets his picture taken. And then now he's in full, full boxing fanboy mode. He's like, you know Steve Bunce? I'm like, yeah. Can I get a picture with Steve Bunce? So now we go backstage and we have a chat with Steve. Oh, oh, Steve still talks to you? Mate, he was at the club show yesterday. He came, he was, he was handing out trophies at Fitzroy Lodge. Like I told you, like I just said the stuff I wasn't happy with, man. Like he came up yesterday and I really respect Steve for handing out trophies yesterday. The actor, the actor Johnny Harris, who's ex-Fitzroy Lodge. Remember, he was the, the dad in This Is England, the TV series. I never watched it. Ah, uh, you it. should. He he's really good, and he What's was his in name? Jawbone. Johnny Harris. So he was the main star in Jawbone as well. And he came and handed out trophies, which is good. So did Guy Williamson, nineteen eighty five super heavyweight champion for in the ABAs. And so when Steve does stuff like that, Steve's a really good guy because he comes down, he comes and watches the lads, you know. And I think whatever he says, man, he likes it because I mean he's with the old timers that he knew coming up in boxing. So I think Steve really enjoys all of that. And it was good to see Steve smiling, happy in his element. And like I said, I just call it like I see it. I'm really grateful that Steve showed up. He was honest and said I could only do the first hour. But he was there, which was good. Had a good chat with Frank Warren as well, actually, um, which, was, okay. which was good. So, yeah, so Ben gets his picture with Frank. Me and Frank have a couple-minute chat. And he's like, who's exciting you in the amateurs? I dropped him a few names. We agreed on a couple. Smiled. He goes, all right, mate, take care. So me and Frank are cool. And then there's Coogan. So I meet up with Coogan as well. So I want to apologize to Coogan Cassius, number one, for fucking up the Denzel Bentley interview. Like, I was just, I don't even know what I was doing in front of that camera, man. I was pissed as a fart. I was hyped because Denzel had done his damage. So I don't think Coogan will release that video, unfortunately, which is a shame. But man, I was just off my head. I don't know how that cider hit me so hard. But no, so I saw Coogan, and well, I love this. Judging by your performance on the live show, he wasn't drinking cider, but I, I know when it hits you hard, you do lose all, com <laughs> all composure and all fucking motor I'm cool. skills. I'm cool, I'm cool, I'm cool. And then I just Drop cliff dive. Yes, yeah, the cliff dive. Yeah, you go I, pure homeless man on methylated spirits mode. Yeah, I literally could have woken up anywhere. But first question I love, Coogan's first question to me, how's your mate? And I'm like, you know, I have more than one friend, Coogan. He's like, Martin. And I was just like, listen, man, you, you two. You know, all I could say to Coogan, I was like, if you two were sat in a pub over a beer or two, you'd get along. 
And he was just like, and Coogan was fair now. He goes, look, I've got to stick up for my guys. And we just had a chat. And I told him what I think we all think, that Umar's really stepped up on IFL. And, and I said to Coogan, I said, mate, I look for the Umar interviews now because he's asking really good questions and the content that comes out is really good. And I even thought, I said, Coogan, man, he's pushing you hard. And, and I like how Coogan really backs his team because he said, this is what he said to me, that his description of Umar is brilliant. He goes, he's hungry, he's consistent, and he's reliable. I can trust him with anything. And that's why he's done so well. He, and I'm just like, yeah, fair play to the lad. And that's a lesson for anyone else that wants to get in boxing. You need those qualities, man. People need to know they can rely on you, that you will deliver consistently. I don't want to speak for Martin at all. Uh, you know, he's big enough and ugly enough to fight his own battles. But I do believe that since having, you know, a quote-unquote pop at, um, at Omar, he's also said that he stepped it up and come on a long way since his initial whatever he said about him. Like, <laughs> I'm not here to fight. Martin's battles just as much as I'm not here to fight yours, but to give it any to give it any level of balance, I think he has walked back his or at yeah. least changed and, his opinion somewhat. And, and and I think I think you could have Martin and Coogan in the same room and they talk it out and everyone's back on the same page. That's the feeling I got. Like in the time I've been around Coogan, I've always thought Coogan's he's all right. Like, look, in terms of that video content stuff, the guy's number one and he has the right to act like he's number one. But actually, if you're not a competitor, he's all right to chat to. So yeah, it was good to catch up with him. I'm glad Ben got to have pictures with all his mates and heroes. It was fantastic to see Brooke there. So Brooke was there on Friday. Yeah, so got to see her. Melissa from Melt PR was there. And I know she's, there's big plans happening in her part of the world, man. So I told her, I told her what my wish list was. So hopefully she can make that happen. But another example of what happens when you're consistent, reliable, and hungry. You know, you can end up being like Melissa is now, where she's she's the PR queen for Top Rank UK. And from what I'm hearing, Top Rank are about to expand. But last but no means least, Isaac Chamberlain. So we were talking about Isaac. Was it last week or the week before? Mm, last week, I think he came up. Yes. I think so, the week before was the... I don't know if anything has been announced... Isaac's on the move is all I can say at the moment. If it's been announced, then you already know who, where he's going and how and why. Congratulations to the lad is all I can say. Congratulations to him. I'm looking forward to what the future holds. I can't believe how he's been treated thus far in his career. This is a guy who, from when he was a teenager was jumping in the ring and doing rounds with guys like Big Domac and Lardy, Dillian White, and so forth. Isaac's, Isaac's done it the hard way, legitimately done it the hard way. You know, you're going off to spar Mike Perez in Ireland. You're sparring Deontay Wilder, for God's sake. You're sparring Usyk. You're sparring Mastanak. As a young man, you're, you're putting this all... I mean, you're really challenging and testing yourself. You've marketed yourself to the point where... You've got the blue tick. You've got nearly 100,000 followers on Instagram. When you tweet, people react. You're relevant in British boxing. And Matchroom somehow couldn't find a way to get him on any one of their 60 shows this year. It's an absolute disgrace how Isaac's been cheated. And all Isaac's ever tried to do is give us entertaining fights. That Camacho fight, you can watch over and over again. 
his fight with Lou Watkins, you can watch over and over again. And I think he's primed now and hopefully he'll be well looked after in his career and we can watch him chase for a world title. Because I think if you look at guys like Okoli and so forth, they're all too big to stay cruiserweights forever. So at some point they'll move up and then it should be guys roughly the same size as Isaac. And then he can, you know, he can have his way and start winning those titles and cleaning up. So I'm, I'm happy for Isaac. In, in wherever his future takes him, I'm absolutely delighted. Are you happy to move on to the PBC shows uh, from Saturday? Just, just to touch on, apologies, I didn't get to catch up with Dev Sani, like, because I'm not often at Warren shows, but actually, I've done, I think I've done a lot of them recently. Shit. But it would be good to catch up with Dev. I know Dev listens, and I'm a big believer in, I'm happy to be accountable for the things I say on here in person. So I like to meet people in real life and they can pull me up on stuff and we can talk it through and we can just understand each other a bit better. I'm really 100% about just engaging with the audience because I don't want to just say things as a faceless guy behind the mic that people listen to on iTunes, SoundCloud, Play.fm, whatever. I want to know, look, I'm visible. You can come and see me every Tuesday, every Thursday. You know where I am. I'm at shows. So I like that interaction. with. That's the thing that gets me excited is that community aspect of it. So be good to catch up with Dev next time, man. Well, you know, I'm sure we'll, we'll find a way. Hey, next time, Dev, man, get, get me into the bowels of the thing, man. I need one of those passes so I can just start shaking hands and feeling important. Okay, let's move on to the PBC show then. No, no. Hey, have you opened the bathroom door yet? No. What? Why are we talking about that again? I've got a few questions, actually. In regard to... Do you want to do the questions first and then we okay. can do the summary? Right. Yestin asks, I've just heard Plata knocked out Wingrove on Wingrove's debut. How do you know your opponent's fighting someone on his debut, the level of their skills, as it could be your guy on the losing side? I guess it's... it's I get where how do you from. how do you measure up an opponent for your fighter's debut to avoid getting knocked out on their debut? Okay, so just by way of context, everyone knows I speak highly of John Pilata. He's a very good friend of mine, a uh, young man I trained as an amateur. Um, cared deeply about him. You know, some people say almost you know blinding me to what's obvious, but fair enough, man. You know, we've all got to have our weaknesses. So, so John boxed yesterday yesterday evening for the first time since december 1st and everyone knows that on the podcast on december 2nd i was critical of everyone that boxed on that show and i said look everyone needs to step up now i know behind the scenes things happened some of which i was less happy about than others but one of the things you do with a guy like john is you have to understand that he's a grown man who knows his own mind and he knows how he's wired to box. So I think sometimes when you train someone, you want to mold them into the kind of fighter you want them to be. But there's also a skill in taking someone as they are and refining and enhancing. And I think in the brief cameo we saw of John yesterday, it was back to the John I remember, back to the John who was savaging people in the amateurs. And I, you know, I like to keep things very simple when I talk to boxers and I say, you're going to disrupt with the jab, you're going to break down with the jab and you're going to destroy with the combinations. And I think you saw a lot of that on Saturday night. 
obviously Dean Wingrove is making his debut. If I'm correct, he was meant to box on February 16th on a British Warriors show and they were jerked around in that instance, which I don't think was through any fault of their own. I think he's managed by Carl Greaves as well. So why you take that fight if you're Dean Wingrove, I don't know. He's not someone who's known in the sport. So it's not this isn't even a guy you can say had 70 bouts as an amateur, therefore should be comfortable in his debut. I guess maybe they saw something in John they thought they could exploit. But John is too experienced. And when John unlocks his full capability of power, skill and intelligence, he's way, he's way above that. You know, you. I, I look at John now and I say, at some point this year, you put him in with Nick Webb. But to do that, it has to be the right training program. It, ha- it can't just be just, uh, you know, you can't fall in love with a fighter. You have to you have to have that clear plan. And John's the sort of guy who responds well to clear leadership. So what I'd like to see is I'd like to see John unleash the, the inner savage within him. And all his fights should be going, especially the four-rounders, should be going no more than two rounds. And John's got that in him. He hits hard enough. He's fast enough. He's intelligent enough that if you're looking for someone to graduate from the small hall scene and cause havoc on TV, he's probably the guy to do that. So would I put Dean Wingrove in with JP? Not if I was managing Dean Wingrove, God no. But if you're going to give John Pilata Wingrove as an opponent, that's what's going to happen. So I'm hoping the next fight, and John fights again on the 30th, I imagine, I'm hoping it's a bit of a sterner test and then what I'd like to see is, you know, John just refining the approach, you know, break down and destroy, disrupt with the jab, take him apart with the combinations, maybe start to look at getting the uppercuts in more. It's a very underrated punch that John has where, you know, he might crack jaws with that punch. So it's about just those small things. But look, I'm happy that John's back on the stoppage trail. Um I've heard people say that he wasn't good in his last two fights. I don't think that's necessarily true. I think Phil Williams is a tough guy to fight, and especially if you've only got one hand. And then the guy before that, I think John was just caught between two styles. And I think 2019, John's just going to go back to the boxer he's always been. And I think one of the punches people should be looking out for as he steps up in level is his counter left hook. It's one of the best in the business. Um, but a more general point on the who do you select, how do you know a fighter's skill level and whatnot, I'm assuming that comes with just knowing the players in and around the, you know, uh, just n- knowing the temperature, engaging the the opponents across the sport at that yeah. time, right? So, so when you're matchmaking, let's say, Andy, I've got you as a cruiserweight, right? If I know you're in my camp, I have I have a list of people that I think you're likely to fight in your first five fights, then your next five fights, and your next five fights. And then I'm looking at what attributes do they have and what are they going to bring out of you? And then I'm just trying to make those fights happen. Because I know if, if I can make those fights happen, you should be at a certain level. Then I can kick you on. Then I can kick you on again. But you really need to know your stuff as a matchmaker to pull that off. You need to know your stuff as a trainer. So as a matchmaker, I've got to know my fighter and I've got to know the market. And I've, the art of it is to match people at the right time. You know, if you look at Ted Cheeseman when he fought that Sergio Garcia kid, someone hadn't done their research on that because that Garcia turned out to be a lot better than imagined. 
and his record was deceptive because his record wasn't that good. I wonder if anyone had seen him box live in the flesh because if they had done, they'd have realized his style is absolutely horrible. Or if nothing else, they would have been able to to plan for that and just be a bit more aggressive in terms of, you know, pinning your head on his chest and working from there. Okay, um, Yestin's had another question. Um, is it good for a boxer in the UK? I love the fact that he just leaves certain words out. Like, you know, you have to, you know, he gets you thinking. Uh, well, that I mean, that is half the issue for me. I'm having to add them in as I go along. Um, I think he just Google translated from Welsh. You know, it, like Welsh, he just used as few words and letters as possible. Maybe he translated it back and forth a few times just to keep me guessing. Um, is it common for a promoter to choose the trainer for the fighter like Hearn does for his fighters? I mean, does Hearn do that for it? Is that well, is that, I mean, you said that as a fact. I don't know if it is. So, so it's tricky. The answer is, there are many options. So if Anthony Joshua wants to be trained by Andy White, no one's really be. going to argue with that. He's, yeah, he's in that privileged position where he can do that. He knows that if I teach him everything I know about boxing, he's getting an early lunch. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what you get. So, so if, if he does, if, he, if he's there like, Eddie, I don't like Rob. <laughs> it's not Frank Bruno. Who knows, man? When you watch him fight, what's the difference? <laughs> but you see what my boy. So, so those guys can do that. Um, Joshua Boatsy is still in the same camp he was with, like before he turned pro. So he's still with the South Norwood and Victory guys. He's brought some additional help in, yes, but he's still there. He's still working with guys like Dwayne Sinclair that he's known for years. So. Eddie hasn't really disrupted that, but they're signed to AJ Boxing, so I imagine you've got a bit more leeway. Lawrence O'Coley went from Brian O'Shaughnessy to Barry Robinson, neither of which are in what I call Eddie's circle of trust. I so, think- is it, so is his assertion that uh, it's common for promoters to choose trainers for fighters, is that, in your it, understanding, it, true? It's common for them to suggest trainers for fighters. So if I'm a promoter, I want you to be with the best trainer I can find for you, right? Now, is it beneficial as well for me to have other relationships with these guys? Yes, of course it is. And that's how promoters tend to have circles of trust. So if you look at Frank Warren, the base of Frank Warren's operation was traditionally the TKO gym in Canning Town. It's latterly moved to the Peacock now. So Frank has a really good relationship with the guys from the Peacock. So if you look, and these are guys we didn't really get to... No, actually, we did. We, we, so we touched on some of them. Look, Peacock products, Daniel Dubois, uh, Anthony Yard, Peacock products, right? Denzel Bentley went from small hall boxer to Frank Warren boxer because he spends a lot of time in the Peacock. And he spends so much time in the Peacock that Steve Heiser at the Fisher wouldn't let him do the senior ABAs. That's why he turned pro, because Steve said, look, you're not in the gym often enough because you're always at the Peacock. But... That's where Frank, like, he trusts whatever's said in the peak or guys like Eddie Muscat and so forth. He trusts their opinion. Eddie's got the Sims gym. That's his base of operation. They're where he's got people who he trusts there. But he's also got satellite influencers like uh, the 12 Rounds gym, or was it 12 by 3, that Darren Barker and Kevin Mitchell work out of. So 
you, you, there are people you trust. That's the nature of boxing. There are trainers you trust. There are people in the sport you trust. There are gyms you trust. And you'll normally suggest a fighter goes there. Um, Steve, if Steve has a blue chip prospect, he'll recommend someone like a Terry Stewart or a Don Charles because they're people Steve trusts to deliver. In the same way, Dennis Hobson used to trust guys to work with certain trainers, Glenn Rhodes, uh, Richard Towers, latterly, who's now got Redouan Kaya, um, young Swedish prospect who might be fighting on the 15th. So that'll be interesting. So Richard Towers is increasingly important in that. And then you've also got guys like the legendary Chris Smedley, the living legend himself, one of the smartest boxing brains out there. So everyone's got their circle of trust, trainers they trust because they've delivered the product the promoters can work with. Uh, Kev Morrow asks, with talk of Bivol moving down to face Smith, what are the pros and cons of moving down in weight for a fight? So high level, you're going to be dealing with more punches coming back at you, more movement at a higher work rate, right? That, that's the reality of it. But if you do the weight correctly, you'll be bigger, you'll be stronger, you'll be used to taking heavier punches. So there's almost like a Venn diagram where, where the pluses and the minuses meet somewhere and there's a sweet spot about how you drop weight, who you fight at that weight. So can there be... Can there be pros for, I, I understand coming down, if you could, you know, just dip into that, oh, a bit like um, what the Canelo does, just dip into that range for the for the weigh-in and then put on 700 pounds overnight and come in, you know, like... Just elephant, just walk, walk in like into an the elephant. Room like a fucking elephant, yeah. But is there ever an advantage to go up so that you can be faster than your opponent? I'm struggling. Historic, historically, fighters have always gone up. So Mayweather made his debut at 126. I get that, but like, oh, 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 do you? Yeah, yeah well, I've I've All seen right. I've All seen right. fighters go up the weight. All right, mate, you want to go back in the bathroom, mate? Get your casual pants <laughs> back on, huh? <laughs> huh? What I mean is, is there ever fighters that go? I'm going to go up for not as a, a a matter of career movement, but just like for one or two fights. Is there ever a case well, for that? Well, Eubank Jr. is doing that right now. Like, Chris Eubank Jr. is weighing in well under, no, he's not well under, but he's weighing in like 167 and a half pounds for a super middleweight fight. And that's his in-ring weight, you know? Whereas you've got guys like Callum Smith who make 168, they'll probably balloon to like 177, 180. But, you, you know what I mean, so so you have that. There's a, so he's hoping that his speed and movement are going to count for him against the bigger guys. And also he hasn't had to make weight. So all he's done is train. Right. You see? So as with some boxers that last week, you're making weight. So you can't necessarily sharpen up the way you'd want to. And then you've got to deal with the rehydration and getting back up to speed. Right, gotcha. Have you timed it right? On fight night, are you fresh? Sometimes you can make the weight wrong. That's the expression, making the weight wrong. Where you you over de you over sorry again you dehydrate too much, and then we replenish. It's too much too soon. Your body goes into like a minor shock, and then you're in the ring and you're just flat. So you have to do it properly. Right. Okay. So yeah. So I think in terms of that, Andy, it's you will move up. Like Floyd did it right. Floyd did it for De La Hoya. Came back down. Then he did it for Canelo, came back down. You'd only do it for one weight class. I wouldn't necessarily want to go from like 140 to 154. I know Pacquiao kind of did, 
when he fought De La Hoya. Didn't but he stayed small. Rigondeaux did that as well, didn't he? To fight Loma. Lomachenko, yeah. Yeah, because he couldn't get any fights, so he had to go up. And so when people say, ah, oh, he quit, people forget, man. Rigondeaux, at 122 pounds, Rigondeaux was small. He's actually a really small man. And Loma's not... I was, having seen Lomachenko in the flesh, ooh, look at me. Loma's not a small guy. Like, when you're talking about those sorts of weights, like bantamweight and super bantam and like sort of featherweight. Adult babies. Yeah, adult teens, I don't know. <laughs> he's he's not small, whereas like Rigandau is. And so there's only so much you want to move up in weight before it becomes disadvantageous. And you definitely don't want to move down from weight. Let's say you're a heavyweight. Who did this? Ah, got absolutely sorted. Eddie Chambers did that against a boxer called Tobiso Michunu. He moved out from heavyweight to cruiserweight and he got absolutely battered because he didn't realize the difference in speed and work rate. And so he he took that for granted and he was just found found lacking. So I think for the big men, once you move up, don't move down. Roy Jones suffered after he fought John Ruiz for the belt. He came back down. He wasn't the same. Tava starched him. And there's no way Tava could have touched Roy Jones before he moved up to heavyweight. But you lose something. And I don't know what that thing is, but there's something that you lose by going from being that big to having to drop 20... Was it? He dropped like 24 pounds to get back down to fight. And it was muscle. It's not like Roy Jones is dropping 24 pounds of fat. Um, right, can we talk... Um, in fact, we've got... Okay, another, another question from Stephen Mark. Which is the more competitive fight, Lomachenko versus Crawler or Crawford versus Khan? Maybe me versus the Twitter trolls. I don't know. (laughs) Um, Look, well, Crawler is probably more durable, but less of an attacking threat. Khan more of an attacking threat, maybe less durable, especially once Crawford starts to let the combinations go. I think we expect Crawler to be outclassed. We expect him to look brave the towel might get thrown in on Crawler. Because if Linares had his mm. way with him, I imagine Lomachenko should. And then there's a, there's a South Poor Orthodox issue. As How well. weird would it be if Crawler beat Lomachenko? What? Would, it do, would, do you think it, the universe would implode? It would shit on Tyson Buster Douglas. Because at least with Buster Douglas, there was like a... Like he could... You know, it was, it was as remote as it was with Buster Douglas you could conceive of a universe in which Buster Douglas might just beat Mike Tyson. Maybe Mike's taken him lightly. Maybe Mike hasn't done the work. Maybe he's been partying a bit too much. Then I'll give him a 0.01% of a chance. Lomachenko leaves no stone unturned. And, I mean, crawler's crawler. He'll have the same limitations he had against Linares. I can't see them doing anything different. Everything's been tried on Lomachenko. The only thing you can do, I think, is try and rough him up. Trying to outbox him, you're going to embarrass yourself. I think you've just got to try and rough him up. Some elbows, some forearms, you know, tweak his neck a bit. You know, smash him in the arms. Just that old school style, I'm just going to just break you down. But no, uh, and then if you flip it around and then you look at Khan versus Crawford, you can see how Khan could win some rounds, you know, He's, he's still got a bit of that hand speed. He's got a bit of movement. But I sense once Crawford figures him out and gets the timing nailed, then you're just looking, ah, it's just a matter of time. And Crawford can go southpaw or orthodox. He, we know Khan's vulnerable to the left hook. 
So do you go orthodox and throw that? Or do you go, actually, I'm going to throw a straight left down the pipe and that's how I'm going to knock him out? He did those, and that's what I think that's what makes it interesting is that if Khan stays on his feet, he could win. But how on earth do you stay on your feet against Terence Crawford, man? Once he starts just savaging you, I mean, it's slightly problematic. And then don't forget this Saturday coming up, we've got Garcia versus Errol Spence. So as much as we complain as boxing fans, man, look, the, the, I mean, these are the kind of fights where they're not necessarily massive fights, but they're fights that will pique the fans' interest. So I'm now, I'm, you know, this is going to be a good few weeks of boxing. Uh, Stephen, Mark, Stephen Mock asks, what is happening with Callum Smith? Six months on from his title win, no fight announced, and Gallagher calling out everyone left, right, and center. Is there an injury problem? Um, or is he hoping for a big cash-out fight? What's going on? So I think the problem is, is there's no big cash-out fight for Callum Smith. Um, George Groves has retired, so even a rematch is off. That's off the table. De Gale's gone, and then you look at all the other contenders at one six eight. The most viable of them probably being Zach Chelly. Zach Chelly's only had six or so fights. Um, Umar Sadiq's had even less. So who's there at one six eight that Callum Smith could make money from? That that's the question here. So you start to look at the Americans, and it's Caleb Plant, but Caleb Plant's not. He's not a pay-per-view guy yet. He probably needs a couple of fights to get to that level. Uh, Benavides, probably a hard, night work, it's a hard night's work for Smith. So what you're going to do is you're going to call out old washed-up guys or is guys who are in retirement. Any hope that he could move up? Any hope? Callum Smith's six foot three. He should move up. I I don't know why he's hanging around at one six eight. You've won a world title there. You may as well move up now. You've got the WBA belt. You could move up and fight for the WBA at 175. I don't see why that's such a challenge. Just he he needs to take control of his career because right now he he's almost turning into another DeGale where George Groves will be his biggest fight. And you know, that's not how you want to end your career because he's not young. He's what, 29? Nearly 30. So if it's not gonna happen now, when is it gonna happen? Um talk about Saturday, the PBC shows. Porter versus Ugas. Um, keep it brief. So, so the PBC had a show out in Carson, California. I can't believe Carson's a city. That's a, that's how big America is. Like everything's just a bloody city. You know, San San Diego, San Francisco, Los Angeles is kind of where I stop with California, and then they tell you Carson's a city, and you're like, what? Maybe Oxnard's a city as well. It's absolutely insane the size of the place, but. Main evented by Sean Porter versus Jordanis Ugas, who, just a brief history. We've talked about the 2005 Amateur World Cup and that Cuban squad, which had Ugas. It might have had daughter. Did it have daughter course? It might have done, but it definitely had Ugas, Rigondeaux, Big Luis Ortiz was involved in that. Orlando Solis was involved in that. So it was a really deep Cuban squad that Ugas was a key part of. And he was only 19 back then. So 2005, he was 19. So he's, he's probably of the same generation as a Sean Porter, but there were different weight classes. Ugas boxed as a lightweight back then and Porter was a middleweight. So they wouldn't have met in the amateurs, I don't think. So they fight at welterweight. Good fight. Uh, you know... Ugas used that Cuban movement, and th- and I think this is the beauty of it. 
often when people box Sean Porter, they like to jump in and out of range. And what Porter does is he just bull rushes forward. So if you have no lateral movement, it's a hard night's work. And Thurman found this out because Thurman's not really a lateral guy. And it was only once Thurman started to circle around Porter, the fight became easier for him. Same thing with Danny Garcia. Garcia's not really a guy to circle a lot. What Ugas was able to do was just use really clever pivots and changes in angle to, to get outside the elbows of Sean Porter. And so that meant he could counter. So every anytime you get on the outside of the elbows, it, it gives you one hand free on the outside and a hand free up the middle. And he kept doing that all the time. Unfortunately, he was robbed again. I, I personally felt Ugas had an argument for winning. He definitely had the cleaner boxing, but people know what they expect with Porter. So Porter kind of gets the nod. It's that kind of thing where, have you done enough to strip the belt off the champion, which I don't agree with. But, you know, Porter lives to fight another day. Worthy of a rematch? I don't see why not. And, you know, can Ugas win it this time? I think with less showboating. So uh, there's something about Cuban boxers where they lack the work rate and the intensity to really push an opponent. Like, it's rare you see a Cuban boxer definitively end a fight, like really savaging someone. Okay. Um, no, anything else you want to touch on in terms of that, that card? No, I've got Ajit... Uh... <laughs> It's a bit of callback to all the names that I can't pronounce. Effie Jagba. So Effie Jagba is is the big secret heavyweight that the Americans are building at the moment. Like, absolutely, like, just like he's carved from teeth. He's just, he just looks solid. Do you remember the story of the lad running out the ring? Well, no, just walking out the ring before the fight even started in protest at fighters' purses. No. So he was meant to fight Effie at Jagba and he just walked out the ring. It was just like, you know, bollocks to this. I'm off backstage. How old and is he? Jagba. He's Nigerian, so he could be anything from 18 to 80. <laughs> just being honest. He, he you know, I, I refuse to believe any number I'm given. He, he's like Luis Ortiz. It could be any number, but he's young. So he was a 2016 Olympian. And so a lot, and he's icing people. So he fought Amir Mansour last night and Amir Mansour is famous for basically smashing the shit out of Dominic Brazil until Brazil caught him with a shot that cut his tongue open and he needed 20 stitches in his tongue oh my god and he did that at 43 years old so I think he's about 45 now (laughs) and yeah so he Uh, 20 stitches in his tongue yeah Mm. mouth was just leaking blood yeah another reason why he should be boxing he wanted to carry on He's like, I'll fight. Am I, I mean, and what, so what people don't realize is Mansoor was, he learned to box in jail. And then like for the early part of his career, he wasn't allowed to leave his home state. So he could only box his home state because it's essentially like that was part of his, his release. So it's only now that he's free to, to travel, which is a shame because when he was on form, he was an absolute savage. Yeah, really unorthodox style. And as a southpaw, it was horrible. It was like, this strange mix of street fighting and actual boxing. And it was just hard to read, hard to time. But he's got older now. And I think Jagba was just like, it's going to punch you really hard and see if you can take it. And the answer is no. So he's on the PBC roster. So I imagine they'll start to build him up. And then you'd be looking for him to chase down Joshua through one of the governing bodies. I'm trying to say, who else boxed last night? Roberto Guerrero's back. 
everyone knows he's the guy that moved from 135 to 147 to fight Floyd and got consummately outclassed. But we love him because he, I think he stopped boxing for a while to take care of his wife who had cancer and then came back. And that was his motivation for fighting Floyd because he wanted to make sure he could take care of his family. So he's a really nice story. He retired, you know, nickname was The Ghost. He retired. Seems like he's got the bug again. So he's back. Don't know why he's back. I imagine he'll be fed to someone who's on the way up and he'll make a nice little payday while he sells his name. But Bivol? Um, so that's the matchroom show. Right. The oh, Dazone. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So Dimitri Bivol fights Joe Smith Jr. Uh, in this country, we know Bivol because he's the, the Twitter hipster's favorite. Um, he's done a few Hearn shows at Monaco. And Joe Smith Jr. is famous for knocking Bernard Hopkins out the ring, essentially. So Bivol basically outclassed him over 12 rounds. Um, showed Joe Smith's limitations. I'm surprised they're talking about Bivol going down in weight. There are so many fights at 175 he should be part of. Why would you ask him to move down in weight just to fight Callum Smith? Like, there's no value in him fighting Callum Smith. You could line him up to fight a Kovalev, line him up to fight a Baturbiev. You could line him up to fight everyone. And and this is the thing I mean about the Eddie Hearn scattergun planning. Like there's no, they don't build career narratives at Matchroom slash the zone. There, there's no career narrative here. You want to move him down to 168 just so Callum Smith can have a payday. It's not fair and it's not right. You know, let Bivol build his own legacy. Um, you know, interesting fact. <laughs> you know, I think Jake Ball fought Dimitri Bivol and managed to see out the whole fight. So, you know, you know, maybe Jake's still got something about him. Um, also on that zone, you've got Johnson versus Monaghan. Yes, so we talked about this earlier, about how people criticise Yard, yet no one criticises Callum Johnson for fighting Shawnee Monaghan. You know, Shawnee Monaghan would be like, I mean, he's like the American Bullioni. He's a guy who will give you a reasonably entertaining fight, but he's not at that world level. And Callum Johnson did him in three rounds, kind of par for the course. And so you look at Callum Johnson and go, okay, what do you do now? You're clearly not good enough to challenge the world champions, but you're too good for the kind of national level fighters. So what do you do? I think you just keep Callum Johnson ticking over till Boatsy's ready. And then that's the next British domestic dust up, put that on pay-per-view and say, right, you know, if Boatsy wins this, we'll set him up for a world title shot. You know, the usual. But yeah, so, you know, another Hearn show in the middle of bloody nowhere. So as a British fan, it's not even like you can you can go abroad and take in these Hearn shows. Like it's like in fucking Mashtucket or some random location. I'm joking. I think it was it was Verona, New York, which I have, I have no idea where Verona, New York is, but I don't imagine you could just get a train there, you know. And so you look at you. So you look at the whole. And it's probably worth touching on this now. You start to look at this whole Hearn Dazon thing, and you start asking what the hell's going on here because okay, you're signing certain fighters, I get that. But what's the end game here? I was talking to a friend of mine, Harry, big shout out to Harry. And so he ha he has a theory on all of this. So his theory is actually, when Hearn says he has a billion, he doesn't have a billion. He essentially has a rev share agreement with these guys where it's like, okay, we're going to give you a budget to put on a boxing show. 
and then we're all going to share in the profits of that boxing show. So what Eddie Hearn has to do actually is build profitable boxing shows for him to make any money. I wouldn't be surprised if like Matchroom aren't making that much profit from their American adventure just yet. And this is why they're signing almost the, the Moneyball signings like Brandon Rios and trying to find markets where there's no competition. So going, going into Mexico, going into Verona, New York, they went to Kansas City. I think they're just trying to build markets where they can have a dominant position because they're going to make their money on the live gates because there's no pay-per-view on the zone. So that's how they want to make their money back. And I would speculate they'll struggle to make their money back until they have a star of the, you know, of the level of a Canelo. And Matchroom don't have that. Golden Boy do. And that's why when presented with identical deals, the numbers look so much better for Golden Boy. But I think, yeah, shouts out to Harry for for sharing the theory that it's actually just a it's a rev share agreement that has some big numbers if you hit your success targets. I don't believe Matchroom are anywhere near hitting their success targets. So, nah, I'm not sold on that. And then, you know, look for DAZN to come to the UK when they realise that they can't make any money anywhere else. They'll come to the UK, maybe buy up the BT sport, sports assets and go from there. Um, just having a look at Verona, New York, and you can't get a train there because they don't have a train line going to Verona. Where is it? Where's it even close to? Uh, well, it's close to um, Syracuse. So right up the top near Buffalo. Uh, hold on, I've got to find Buffalo. So it's right by the border. No, not that close to the border. But I mean, well, it's, I mean, probably I don't know, two or three hours away. I suspect from the from the. Yeah, but you, you know when you go, you know you look through and you you start seeing all the names that you've never. There's a place called Carthage, which is in New York. There's also a place called Rome. <laughs> I, Yo, it's such a big country. They just they ran out of names yeah. to call stuff, and they just just stick a load of Vienna. <laughs> just on a random whim, what are we going to call that? Vienna. I, I, a handful of random names here: Clay, Brewertown, Gayville. Cleveland, Bridgeport. Yeah, bizarre, bizarre names. Oswego. I mean, some of them will be um, plays on Native American names, aren't they? But Boonville, Forestport, just... And, uh, and basically, I'm just going to see if there is the podcast naming places. Um, Mate, you're like, it's like nowhere near New York City. Like, no, I know. It's, it's nowhere near. You'd have to fly in and fly out again. Yeah. Like, you may as well go to Canada. Like, let's, wait, Bizarre. one second. Bizarre. They could have had that shit in Toronto. Same, I mean, like, Verona's equidistant from New York and Toronto. Wow. Is that where, is that where Eddie Hearn wants... This must be killing him inside. Hmm. Bizarre. But more more bizarre is that we're consi- we're continuing to talk about it when nobody cares. <laughs> We've so, done wonders for the Verona tourist board. We have um, s- all that's left on my agenda now, given we've co- covered the questions, um, is small hall roundup. Yeah. Well, so so I think the the conclusion you guys can take from this is this is one of those weekends where there was more boxing than you can really consume. So you're just having to take snippets from where you can. So so Steve Goodwin had a show Saturday. And obviously JP boxed, um, which I was deli- absolutely delighted for him. The only other highlight I took from that was Ellis Zorro boxed as well. And I think 
he beat uh never know the guy's name Kent Kapanen. Now, why would I be happy for Elizondo? Elizondo is trained by Roy Connor. Roy Connor is a good friend of mine and possibly one of the best amateur boxers this country's ever produced. Um, how and why Roy didn't turn pros beyond me, but Roy's about 19 or 20 stone. Still has some of the fastest hands you'll see. Like you, you can't just jump in there and expect to outbox him. He's still quick. But it's good to see he's building his his small pro empire, man. So shouts out to Roosters Boxing. You know, and I'm just I'm you know, genuinely happy for someone like Roy that he's got a young man who's really doing his thing and maybe they can get him in the cruiserweight contention. I know Daniel Mendes beat Danny Cousins for the Southern Area Cruiserweight title. Um, I think Daniel Mendes is one of the guys I had criticized on December 1st. So fantastic to see that he's stepped up and he's done his thing. So congratulations to him. Uh, to be fair, I can't think of anyone else who fought that night. Obviously, I've touched on JP. And then Steve's got another show on the 16th, next Saturday, where Nell Massey makes her second debut. So I'm hoping that Nell really puts it in and does her thing because this is when I would have liked her to have her debut. I, even when she turned over, I said, I'd like you to start you know, your pro career in March 2019. You know, sometimes people don't listen to me, but I think she's probably more mature now in terms of you know what she needs to do to perform. I think she's in a better place. She's more stable now. So I'm expecting a better performance. If she doesn't win, fair enough, but I just hope that she can, you know, she boxes her hearts out and just leaves it all in the ring. Um, other small hall stuff. Brentwood. So so all of our small hall friends seemingly went to Brentwood last night. Like no one was at your call because I wanted someone to video John Pilata's fight. And no one was there. They're all at Brentwood. So Brooke was there, Sam, Richie Gray. Like, I think like, so many people were at the Brentwood show. And it's a sign that MTK are slowly inching their way, you know, upwards. And look, they signed Adam Booth as an advisor now. So read into that. We need Adam Booth to train some of our guys. And that tells you where, where MTK is shooting for. But I'm trying to think who boxed on that show. Martin McDonough, trained by Billy Rumble. So he's now 5-0. and And the energy for that Mason Smith fight keeps building. But, you know, happy for those guys. I want to say Shaq Day boxed on that show. But I'm so confused that he might box on Steve's show. But Shaquille, he did all right. And then who else was on the Brentwood show? Who, who are these other MTK guys? Yeah, I can't even remember. I'm not going to lie. But this is what happens on a weekend like this. That there's so much boxing that happens that you know, the revenue gets spread too thin. I'm like, who's making money here? Because most, like your hardcore ticket buyers normally converge in one venue on a weekend. Now you've split them three ways because there was a show in Watford run by British Warriors, which probably had a stronger lineup. So you had Zach Chelly boxing, first round demolition job, like absolutely battered this guy. Like didn't even last 30 seconds. And then Umar had his first fight since the loss to Zach Chelly. And he demolished, uh, what's the guy's name? I want to say Yevgenis Andreevs, who's the lowest ranked boxer on BoxRec in that weight class. Now, you might go, oh, Umar fought a shit opponent. Not true. This lad's been in with everybody. Like, he's boxed as high as cruiserweight. So he fought Valerie Brudoff at cruiserweight. You know, a guy that gave Bellew some trouble till he beat him. And so, 
you know he's tough because hardly anyone stops him. You know, Lawrence Osweke couldn't stop him. You know, a load of British fighters haven't stopped this guy. Uma stopped him in two rounds. So that's a really good sign. From the video I saw, different mindset. You know, Uma's unleashing the savage now. I think before, and we, you know, we've had Uma on here. I think before, I think he was almost caught between the, I need to be this picture-perfect boxer. It all has to look good on YouTube. And I said, you know what, mate? Just be busy. Just have the desire to take his head off. Go out there and do it. And so he's done that. So he's back on, you know, he's back on that winning path. Get him a few more fights like that, a few more challenges. And then let's see Uma back on TV doing his thing. But really, really happy for him. It's good to see friends of the podcast doing well. And it's good to see them being well-managed because he, he could have just sat around waiting for Frank to give him something. Instead, <coughs> instead Uma was proactive and said, I want to fight regularly. Get me on a show, any show. And what we're starting to see actually is there seems to be a link up between British Warriors and Frank Warren now, whereby if you're a British Warriors guy and you impress, you might get called up to the Frank Warren roster. If you're a Frank Warren guy that needs minutes and rounds, you can go and do that on a British Warriors show. So yeah, that looks like an interesting hookup. How's your voice feeling? You've done a lot of heavy lifting today. Fucking hell, man. We can go for another five hours if we have to. I'm trying to think. No, we don't need to go for another <laughs> yeah, five hours. Yeah, what else do we need to touch on? Because <laughs> uh, I might not you be here. You mentioned hitting. Isaac Chamberlain. Yes. And I, uh, obviously I told you off camera, the, the news is good. I'm happy for him. He's, you know what I mean? He's a guy that's done everything asked of him. And, you know, there's not much more you can ask. So we've done that. Ah, Yes. Obviously, I'm not on Twitter, so as is often the case when I speak on Twitter, it's always directed towards Martin and Andy, all right? We need to do a live show this year. I'd ideally like to do one around May time. So maybe just before that bank holiday weekend and just throwing ideas out. Andy's looking upset like he's getting my, my initial hunch is there's just not enough time to prepare for that not for May well, but I mean I, I'm not I'm not poo-pooing it I'm just saying that no, but let, let's get the view right but let's do I'd love to do it differently actually let's no guests we, we've done the guest thing now let's do it the way I think the fans want it to be so we have <laughs> we, we have Andy Mr. Diplomat White Probably has to work on his diplomacy skills. And he will play David Dimbleby. And you'll have myself, Martin, Sam O'Reilly, Richie Gray as the panel. Do it like question time. I think we you know, play around with the format. Do it like question time. Um, we'll always invite the boxers to come and watch and get involved. But I think this time it's better that the boxers do the mingling you know, in the audience and then we we just do that podcast we, we bring the two forces together like we've, we've been promising it for so long that I think it's, people just want to see what happens when when all the goons get together and I think that would be that would be good but I want to put that out to to the collective wisdom of the Twitterati or if you're on Instagram feel free to respond to me on Insta uh, it's 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 in the mix we'll put that into the mix Right, uh, I'm done. Are you done? Yeah, Yo, that's enough. That's a nice short one, isn't it? Didn't it is relatively say, short. Did someone yeah. say an hour and a half? Yep. It is about an hour and a half, yeah. There you go. Okay, thank you very much for listening. 
guys enjoy and we will see you next week I'm gonna get it up, 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 I'm gonna get it up,